Hi all, and welcome to the second episode of Opt Out. This episode, I'm super excited to sit down with Katan and chat about privacy, free and open source software, self-hosting, and some of his favorite tools. How's your weekend, Katan? Yeah, not too bad. How's yours? It was good. It was good. A lot of uh, a lot of cleanup around the house. Just moved into a new place, so been doing a lot of pressure washing and getting rid of the dozens of sheds that the old person had. That kind of thing. Nice, nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, nothing too crazy though. Um, well, let's just get get started. Uh, I know we chatted a little bit before we went live, but um, we've kind of been in the same circles for a while, but but haven't really crossed paths and chatted a lot in the past. Um, so if you just want to go ahead and introduce yourself, kind of introduce what you what you do in the space, um, and uh, just get, let us know a little bit about you. Yep, sure. So uh, my name is Kitan. Um, I am the co-founder of Ministry of Nodes. And we basically help people transition over to a Bitcoin standard. Um, and we teach people how to hold their own keys and run and use their Bitcoin nodes. Um, and part of that, I also have a little personal blog on the far corners of the internet, um, which teaches the peripherals of Bitcoin. So I, I, I write up posts on privacy, free and open source software, self-hosting, digital sovereignty, those sorts of things. So that's just a little bit about me um, and, and what I do. Awesome. Well, uh, definitely something I'm going to be asking every guest on the podcast, but um, what was it that initially woke you up to the need for personal privacy? I know that's a, a big driver for you. Yeah. So for me, I think I, I think I can pinpoint one exact moment where I, I woke up. Um, and when I... I, I was always a, a Windows user throughout my teens and 20s, really, as well. Um, and what I was doing was just going from, you know, Windows XP to Windows 7. And then I migrated over or upgraded to Windows 10. And as soon as I upgraded to Windows 10, I was absolutely blown away with the amount of bloat. Um, and when I opened up the uh, the menu there, it had Candy Crush and all these weird pieces of software that I really didn't want. It felt completely uh, surveilled. Uh, I, I did not feel safe whatsoever. Um, and the point where, I don't know, I, I, I almost fell off my chair. So somewhere in between me falling off my chair and my head hitting the ground, I think that's when I literally woke up to the need for personal privacy. Um, that was probably my my turning point there. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely vividly remember when they launched Windows 10. And I feel like everybody collectively lost their minds about all of the tracking and native ads and bundled games and apps that nobody had asked for and nobody wanted. And they just stuffed it right into Windows 10. Yep. And and that's probably the moment where I went, look, there's got to be something better than this. We can't just be on this. So, and that's when I kind of went down the path of Linux and and, and researching that all, all that whole, you know, segment of the market there. Um, I had previously done a little bit of research um, and used a little bit of Linux at you know throughout my teens and stuff early early days but uh it, it just wasn't ready there like it, it just was not as good as what it is now so uh yeah that's when i sort of started to make changes yeah it's definitely come a, a long way i feel like linux has in the last i don't know 10 years it's come so far i mean i think windows 10 around then was when i really started diving into checking out different linux distros um and Ubuntu was kind of the easiest to use. I did venture down the path of 
Arch Linux and starting from scratch. And that lasted all of maybe two days. <laughs> yep, yep. So I, I've done a lot of distro hopping myself. Um, I, I started again on Ubuntu um, and then sort of I went into, you know, Arch and uh, Manjaro and um, Debian. I tried that out as well. Um, and then, you know, I kind of went into Cubes OS as well. That, again, lasted about two days. I just, uh, it was, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was something different. Um, and then sort of now I've kind of set, settled on Pop! OS, which is probably my favorite uh, Linux distribution at the moment. I think it respects your privacy um, and it has all the bells and whistles of Ubuntu as well. Um, it's easier to use and it just has this just works factor uh, to it that I, I really enjoy using. So that's where I've landed on and that's where I'm probably going to stay for a while. Yeah, when I finally circled back to trying to use Linux as a daily driver, because um, I mean, normally I'm, I've been using macOS for work and then Windows for home, but really just like gaming. Um, and I haven't really had much time to do that recently. But when I finally did circle back, Pop! OS was a recommendation and I tried that out. And I, I did love, it's just very simple. It kind of has the Ubuntu-esque feel of the UI makes sense. There's good bundled options. It's just a, a nice, smart starter OS, especially. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so for me, I'm not even running Windows anywhere. Um, yep. I only use it for my work laptop. Um, but yeah, it, throughout the home, um, there are no Windows uh, instances, which I'm pretty pleased about. Yep. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm glad to have moved over to something like Linux. It, it feels just a little bit snappier um, and, and feel, feels freer as well. And in terms of gaming, like throughout my teens, I've only played one game, and that is Counter Strike Go. And guess what? Linux works. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, Counter Strike yeah. Go works fantastic on, on Linux. So, um, yeah, that's the only game that I really play, and it's it's been ported over quite well. So, in terms of gaming, check everything else. Check. I'm I'm pretty much all in on Linux at this point. That's good to hear. Yeah, I uh, I use Debian for my daily driver now. I've been doing Debian testing for the last couple months, I think. Um, and I've been enjoying that. I just wanted something a little bit more minimal than Pop! OS, but I do love Pop! OS, and it's probably my main recommendation for people who want to start making the switch over to Linux. Yep, definitely. Um, I, I like Debian as well. It was, it, it just, I, I feel like there was a bit too much configuring um, to be done, whereas Pop! OS, straight out of the install, it is really nice. So, yeah, a great place to start for, for newcomers. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know that you mentioned Pop! OS a bit in your blog, um, and I'm curious, what, what was it that pushed you to start doing privacy and self-hosting education? I mean, you mentioned Ministry of Nodes as well, but your blog is the main thing I've checked out at least. Yeah, so I think um, education for me is, is bringing privacy to more people. Um, and what that means is it allows you to better hide in the herd. So what that means is if everybody else is doing similar activities, um, then it's very, it, it makes it difficult for uh, someone to single you out. And so when you have this huge amount of volume that's being driven through um, some sort of privacy uh, respecting aspect, then what that means is you can somewhat protect your own privacy. That's just a, like a, like a, I guess, like a, the, the theory anyway. Um, but then also teaching and putting your ideas out there helps your own understanding of topics. So I like when I put out a blog post um, and I put it on Twitter and, you know, 
it, it goes out. People read it and then they give me comments. And from those comments, I can, you know, uh, take that on board and go into other rabbit holes that I may not have had to uh, or, or had the experience of. So that's kind of the two reasons why I started this privacy and self-hosting education. Um, but I don't do it formally. It's just a blog that, you know, I put out there and see what people think and get recommendations around bettering my own privacy as well. Um, and also bringing along the people who, who want to who want to focus on this as well. So those are the kind of two reasons that I, I, I pushed me to do this. Yeah, that bit about learning yourself, I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't think about. And it's probably the biggest thing that I've gotten out of running my blog. I mean, I don't have a ton of blog posts, maybe maybe five or 10. Um, but every time I write something, not only do I realize as I'm writing it, there's a lot that I think I know <laughs> that I don't actually know because you know, I can't get actually get it down on paper in a way that's intelligible and, and easy to understand. So it helps to really flesh out my own thoughts about topics around privacy, cryptocurrency, whatever it may be. Um, and it, it gives a really good space for the people within my social circles to to jump in and say, hey, actually, you're doing it this way, but you could do it this way and it would be a lot quicker. Or this is actually a much better privacy preserving tool that you should try out instead or any number of things. And that that process has been so, so helpful. Yeah, never underestimate the anons in the space who will come and tell you what's better. Um, they, they are fantastic and, and they always sort of make their make their point and make their, their, their yeah, they speak their minds and it's, it's quite uh, endearing, if anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of Anons, one of one of my favorite articles that I checked out on your blog was how you'd start your digital identity over. And I thought that was a, a really fascinating topic and something me as a non, non-Anon, non <laughs> I was kind of curious reading through that. And, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you. Why did you write out that blog? And then if you don't mind walking us through at least some of the key steps that you wrote down in that, I thought it was a really fascinating look at how someone, especially someone new to the space, kind of start an anon or, or pseudo-anonymous um, identity? Yeah, so this article is probably uh, my most popular one. Um, it ended up on Hacker News, uh, and uh, I, there was a lot of feedback there, um, mostly good comments. There was some also some criticisms as well. Um, but by and large, yeah, I, I, honestly, I thought I was being DDoSed. I, I woke up to, you know, 50,000 views um, one day and it was, it was yeah, <laughs> it was interesting. Wow. Um, so I thought that, you know, this uh, this topic seems like it's, it's it really hit the mark um, on how people would start to do over their digital identity. And I, the reason that I wrote it or why I wrote it was I was thinking about my kids. Um, I don't actually have kids, but at some point um, I, I will, and hopefully. Um, and so what I'm thinking here is if I was in their shoes at, you know, age 10 or 11 or 12 or something, what could I potentially do to not be, um, you know, uh, as surveilled by corporations? Uh, what could I potentially do to help me? Um and this could be something, you know, that teens could read as well. Um, and if you want to start over again, that could also be a, a, a you know, a, a read for you as well. So that's kind of my mindset in why, uh, in how I, I wrote this and I, I approached this um, because we've all made mistakes and I, I certainly have made mistakes. I'm sure you have as well. And we regret them. And what I want to do is say, okay, well, 
if you're a teen or if you're someone, you know, who's just starting out, here is some lessons that I've learned that you may want to uh, consider and you may want to adopt yourself. It's probably not the easiest path, path or it's not the, um, you know, the path of, path of least resistance. You're going to face a lot of resistance, but I think it's probably one that is worthwhile over the longer term. Um, until you're, you know, well and ready uh, and and evolved as a as a human to make your own decisions because when you're you know starting off it's it's you know and you're and you're young you just want to follow the crowd and and just fit in and sometimes that's not the best approach over the longer term so with this article I basically go through um, a fair few things uh, but the first thing that I do is uh, promote cash um, surprisingly and so basically what you want to do here is uh, earn money um, in a you know, I guess a, a way that is a little bit private. And if you're going to earn money, um, the best way to do that, and I give some examples there, you know, you can walk dogs, do some tutoring, those sorts of gardening, all those sorts of things, and you save up a cash, uh, like, you know, a, a pot of cash. And from there, you would acquire some devices. Um, now, the first thing to acquire a device is you're going to probably, I, I would recommend a secondhand marketplace for this. Um, Generally, older computers and older machines are, are generally the more privacy-respecting ones, but also they are um, more, you know, with drivers and all those sorts of things, they're, they're probably just a little bit easier to, you know, install things on. Um, and, you know, it's compatible with things. So I suggest some some form of uh, Lenovo ThinkPad, and I also suggest a mobile phone as well. Um, and I, in that, I'm using uh, or, or I'm suggesting a Pixel 3a, Pixel 4s, uh, Surprisingly, it's a bit ironic, actually, um, that I'm using a Google device for a privacy-oriented um, uh, venture. But what it is is, I suppose, Google has uh, or, or these the hardware is actually very, very good. And so, what's uh, what's good about it is that you can then flash the um, the, uh, the the operating system on there into something a little bit more friendlier like Graphene OS or my favorite, which is Calyx OS. So those are the types of um, recommendations that I'm making. I'm also making re recommendations on the laptop um, to, to install or to wipe Windows from there and start using Pop OS, which is my favorite flavor of Ubuntu, which I think most you know um, users will sort of, uh, uh, will transition to easier than say another distro in my opinion that's all um from there uh i'm suggesting potentially getting some bitcoin um and uh cr creating up a, a wallet and and getting some bitcoin to then fund uh certain exercises things like buying an eSIM, which is a, a way of getting a SIM card a little bit more privately. Um, so you're not getting a physical SIM card. You're actually just downloading a, or present getting a, a QR code. And you are just basically uh, scanning that and that becomes your SIM card. And pixels uh, are a way of, of, of doing this or, or that's it's supported with that. So that's one of the cool things about um, Calyx OS as well as uh, uh, Pixels is that they support these eSIM products. So that's fantastic to see. And I I'm hoping that, you know, uh, that market continues to grow. Um, and then from there, it's more around self-hosting, um, getting a VPN, uh, upgrading your home internet connection. Um, and then I talk a little bit about, you know, uh, 
some non-negotiables, um, like what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't, you know, sign up for a Facebook account. I wouldn't sign up for, you know, uh, certain things um, and social medias. So that's kind of what the basic rundowns of, of, of what I would do in this um, space. Uh, I know it's probably a little bit uh, lengthy, um, but I think for, for me, it's always been the thrill of the chase almost. I think as you do things a little bit more privately, you start to, it, it just becomes a hobby. Um, I, I'm not doing this to really attack anyone. I'm just doing it just to defend. Uh, and so that's kind of where I see this whole uh, starting a new digital identities, um, you know, uh, article land. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure people reading through that who aren't kind of deep down the privacy rabbit hole, it could be a little daunting. But I think you, you brought up a good point that it's, it's a it's a journey and it's really a step-by-step -step process. And once you start it and you see the results of that and you start to see uh, just how much you can improve your privacy doing each of those steps, it becomes something that you really want to complete. Um, it's it's daunting to look at the whole of what you want to accomplish when you're kind of reorienting and, and maybe recreating a digital identity or maybe just saying, I want to start over and, and do these things the right way. Um, but if you really do take it a step at a time and focus on, I think you laid out in really good order where you should start and getting a physical device first and the process around that. Um, and something you specifically mentioned was Calyx OS. And, and that's something I'm kind of focusing on this week with this episode um, at the end. But I wanted to get your thoughts around that. Um, I'm going to point our listeners to Calyx OS. But I was curious if you had any advice or pointers around using that. Yeah, um, so Calyx OS has been my daily driver for a couple of months now. I, I, I'm really, really enjoying it. I do have a couple of pointers um, that I think your listeners should uh, consider. The first one is to research plexus.techlaw.tech. Um, perhaps you can put that on there in the show notes. But this is a little uh, website that is community driven um, that shows you app compatibility. So sometimes uh, Calyx OS may not uh, support the app that you are interested in, things like banking apps, maybe things like Uber, um, all these sorts of apps may not be compatible. There are other alternatives, um, but I would strongly recommend that you check out uh, this website, which shows you what is compatible and what the, I guess, defects are at any point in time for this particular OS. Um, so research that before you, you make the switch. Um, and see that your 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 daily apps are all in good shape and are in working order, or that you can find an alternative to them. The next thing that I would say is you'll need to make a decision on whether you will enable Micro G or not. Now, this is a one-time decision, and you can't go back on um, whether or not you want it. Micro G is basically a little application that sits in the background um, that communicates to Google Google server via a spoofed account. And what that is, is essentially, um, it gives you a, a, a little background services, like for example, your notifications. Um, say for example, you install uh, the ProtonMail app, for instance. Uh, ProtonMail app relies on Google uh, messaging services or GMS. And if you don't have MicroG enabled, then every time you get an email, you won't be notified. You'll have to manually check the app to see if you've received any emails. So these are just sort of convenience slash usability trade-offs. Um, and I think you'll find that throughout the entire uh, run-in with Calyx OS, that it is a, it is a, uh, a trade-off with convenience and, I guess, privacy. Um, and so what you want to do is maximize your convenience without giving away too much of your privacy. 
I, for me personally, I've enabled Micro-G. I think that that is, it, it's fair enough for me because I want certain things to work. Um, and so that is why I have done Micro-G uh, enabled. And then the next tip that I've got is um, if you want to do this on the, on the, on the cheap, then um, starting off with a Pixel 3a uh, using a secondhand marketplace is probably your best bet. So if, you, if you're on Apple and you want to just try this out um, just to see how you go, then I think uh, buying something cheap um, like a Pixel 3a off a secondhand marketplace uh, would probably be your best bet um, when it comes to uh yeah, these, these devices that are compatible with Calyx OS. There's only a small range. So I think the cheapest, uh, I think, is the Pixel 3a. So that's probably where you might want to start off with. And it's a good device. It's In fact, it's my daily driver, and I don't see a need to upgrade anytime soon, even though I have heard good things about the Pixel 5. Yeah, yeah, I've been using Calyx OS for, I think, three months now as my daily driver. Um, and I've been, I've been running on a Pixel 4a. Um, and it's, I, I think the thing that people don't realize is when you go to something like this, the lightweight nature of not having all of the extra stuff that you're used to having. And a lot of times, I mean, like I, I, I didn't enable micro G, um, which was a process. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't recommend that to someone who's like kind of just starting on the privacy journey. Uh, it was a good chance for me to kind of go through and purge the, the last remaining services that are a little bit more invasive. Um, but it is it is a pain because like Proton Mail, I don't get notifications, uh, which is definitely definitely annoying. But there are many apps that do integrate a way to do notifications without Google Play services. Um, like yeah, and I think Proton Mail is actually working on a way of removing their reliance on GMS. So I mean, look, it, it's all coming together and it is getting better. But at some stage, you might value some of the features that MicroG um, has. Uh, look for me, I'm okay with it, um, but yeah, for, for some people that might not be an option. Um, then that that's fine too. Yeah, I would think I would think for most people probably the best approach is to enable Micro G, um, and then slowly go through the the apps that they use and figure out what they can find a a FOSS or more privacy preserving alternative is. Um, and then hopefully that alternative will have support for non Google Play services notifications and features, and they won't have to worry about worry about it as much. But it definitely is uh, quite a bit more difficult when you do disable that. Um, but like I said, there, there are lots of apps that do do notifications and do work properly without Micro-G. And that's something I think that, that Plexus makes a note on apps on whether they work or not without Micro-G. Um, but if not, ask around the community. I've been using tons of different apps. You have recommended lists of apps. Um, I have a lot on mine, and, and all of mine are based on not using Micro-G um, on my blog post. And so people can definitely use those. But there are like, like Signal works without Micro-G. Um, Element, a matrix client works without micro G. Telegram works without micro G. So there are there are a lot of things that do work, but it definitely is a little bit more uh, a little bit more tricky. Definitely. Um, while we're on the topic of of FOSS, uh, I was curious why is free and open source software an important distinction for you? It's something you you talk about a lot in your blog. You have a a really helpful blog post with just some some bullet points of of specific FOSS software that you you like and recommend. Um, I'm just curious, what why is FOSS a focus for you? Yeah, so the, the reason that I like FOSS um, is, is that it respects the individual's right to privacy. Um, I, I think for me, like privacy is something that I, I actually came into it because I had something to protect. 
Um, it was actually most people come in because they just want privacy, whereas I came in the other way around. I have Bitcoin. It's not something that I want to hide, but it's definitely something that I want to protect. And so having free and open source software uh, is an important distinction for me because it allows the community to figure out if there are any vulnerabilities in this uh you know, uh, in this software, as well as then contribute back to the code and fix it. And I think that that is an amazing distinction from the alternative, which is closed source, non-free proprietary software. Um, this is, uh, uh, I believe it is a better way of, of doing software development. Having said that though, I'm not a software developer, but I do feel that having things that are out in the open helps to bring about changes in software and makes it better. That's why I truly believe um, that free and open source software is the better of the, the, the two camps. Yeah, it's definitely, it's an interesting idea about it being a safer alternative. I think like I'm not a software developer either. So I love the aspect that people can go and like review the code and make sure that it makes sense. Um, but like specifically, I'm not able to do that. I can kind of get a general feel for how something's written or like go through documentation. But do you have any kind of specific process you go through to vet a piece of FOSS software yeah. or? Yeah. Um, one of my biggest distinctions um, or my, I guess, um, yeah, one of my processes would be what's recommended, but then by, by certain people that I I, I trust and I, I, I look to. Um, there are also GitHub is probably my biggest way of finding out whether a project is worthwhile spending some time on. Um, if you look at the number of stars, if you look at the issues, if you look at the, the last modifications, the latest release times, those are some, some of the indicators that speak to me that this project is actually being actively worked on. People are liking it. People are enjoying it. People are using it. So those are some, GitHub to me is probably one of the you know drivers in how I assess whether a project is worthwhile. I'll have a look at the issues. I'll have a look at some of the pull requests. See what's changed. See what's going on. Uh, see the discussion. Those are some of the factors that I, how I decide whether a project is um, worth looking or spending more time into. And then I'll sort of go around and ask friends and, and other people that I know in the community, hey, what do you think about this? Um, and that's kind of how I sort of assess uh, whether or not um, a, a project could be compatible with, with something or, or something that I want to bring into, into my desktop or phone. Yeah, using community and just using people that you trust. I mean, I know that a lot of people in the space talk about like don't trust verify, but you do need those people around you that you you know that they're kind of on the same journey as you, they're on the same focus as you, you know that that they're doing their due diligence and and they're really learning as well. Um and so having those those people that you trust and that that circle of community around you to help you figure out what some new tools are, to help you figure out like, hey, I found this new tool, what do you all think? Um, that's that's extremely valuable. And I mean, that's that's where I've learned about most of the tools that I use. That's where I love to just drop a link and say, hey, guys, I just found this like anybody using it. Um, so much value there. Yes, exactly. And you'll get you'll get good feedback um, every time that you drop a link. I think the trust don't don't trust verify if you take that to ridiculous literal levels, um, you'll end up finding that you need 30 years of programming experience at age 20. 
So it's just, uh, yes, it is important to, to verify, but as you say, I think the community and uh, relying on others um, to, or trusted people to, to vet things, uh, I, I think is a, is a worthwhile endeavor as well if you're just starting out and you, you are just trying to, you know, as a user. Yeah, it's almost like crowdsourcing verification in a sense. That's right. Um, another thing around FOSS is that usually it's it's pretty straightforward and there are options and there's documentation around how to self-host self-host something. Um, and I know that's that's something again you talk about a lot on your blog a lot on your blog. That's something that's been a, a focus for me for many years. Um, just hosting stuff at home on a VPS, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on why self-hosting is a is a focus um, and and why do you think it's important that other people get into self-hosting their own tools? Yeah, so for me, uh, my journey into self-hosting started very, very slowly. I was, I was actually, I had my hands tied behind my back, um, and the reason for that is due to my internet service provider. Um, throughout my teens and twenties, I had an internet service provider that was fantastic in terms of download, so I'd get hundred Mbps. Um, having the ability to leech was fantastic when you're in your teens and twenties. It is, it is amazing. However, my Upload capacity was two, a measly two Mbps. Now, if you wanted to host something with two Mbps, um, you're going to have a very, very difficult time. Yeah. Um, it, it really sucked. Um, so not only that, but the ISP also blocked port 80 um, and port 443. So they obviously didn't want you to self-host. Um, and... That was really, really upsetting. Um, and then what happened was the the country, uh, Australia, upgraded. Um, I use the term loosely, but it upgraded its network to uh, the National Broadband Network, and that now gives me forty Mbps. Is it is it great? No, uh, but is it workable? Yes. So to that extent, um, I'm now just you know starting to get a handle on self hosting. Um, my own tools, because now I'm able to remote in to my own home uh, from anywhere on the planet and be able to access the services and data that I need at any point in time. And I think that that is a valuable, valuable um, uh, tool because it enables you to protect your data a little bit better. It protects you from getting deplatformed and censored. Um, and it also protects you from having your data lost. Um, now, there are obviously trade-offs here. I, I'm, I'm you know, self-hosting is a big, big topic, and there are some trade-offs. Um, for example, uh, whilst you, you know, a, a, a company could shut you off, uh, like a, a, another provider, um, you now have the full responsibility of handling backups and handling uh, your internet connection, handling power outages. All of those things now rest on you. So. There are some great advantages to self-hosting, and I feel like it is something that I enjoy doing. And I've written an entire article around how I uh, get the job done. And there's multiple ways to skin this cat. Um, but I've just found what works for me, what's easiest for me based on the computers and the hardware and the specifications that I have. So these are some of the things that sort of why I do this. It's, it's really important that people do host their own tools. Um, to protect their data and to protect from themselves from getting deplatformed or censored or cut off. Um, and that is kind of why you would want to use your own tools rather than using somebody else's hosted tool. Whenever you think of the cloud, think of somebody else's computer has and somebody else has access to this data. 
do you really want that? And that's the question that you need to be asking when you, you are going down the self-hosting route. Yeah, self-hosting, it, it definitely has some of the biggest pros of all of the things you can do for privacy, especially as you find good FOSS that is privacy preserving and, and fits your needs. Um, but it it definitely can be, it can be tricky. Um, I'm thankful there's tons of good educational content out there. Um, people like you putting out content. Uh, I've put out content in the past. I'm sure that a lot of the guests that we'll have on this podcast will have put out content on how to self-host tools. Um, but it is, I think it's a vital thing that everyone at least try to get into, learn a little bit, maybe start with a VPS, something where you don't have to worry about power outages or internet issues, that kind of thing. Um, start checking out some some of the simpler tools like maybe Nextcloud or um, trying out some some bundled uh, self-hosting services like Unohost, that kind of thing. It's something that I think everyone needs to be comfortable with, um, but it's definitely not necessarily the right solution for everyone. Uh, it's just, it's a very, very powerful tool. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there are some people who would be into it, some people who might be happy to rely on uh, a, a trusted third party. And then there's some someone somewhere in the middle, like, for example, using a VPS. Um, and I think that those are, you know, having these options and making the right decision for you is probably where you need to sort of um, uh, cast your mind and cast your attention as to what you're trying to protect yourself from and, you know, what you want to uh, achieve with your self-hosting. Um, yeah, so it, there's a range of options there and you should be able to, you know, uh, navigate through all of them um, and, and look at the pros and cons and and, and decide what you for yourself what you want to do. Uh, it is a big, big rabbit hole to go down though. Um, there are so many, uh, so many interesting projects and as you've mentioned, Nextcloud is probably uh, one of the most regular tools that I use to opt out. Um, and so that's, that's yeah, it, it is a great, you know, uh, starting point. Nextcloud would be a, a great place. Yeah, another al alternative too could be, uh, say you have a group of friends, you have a community and you're, some of them are into self-hosting and some of them, it just, it feels like it's too much for them. It could be an option too to, to self-host for a trusted group of friends as well. I mean, that's something that, that I've done with friends in the past where, I host some tools, they use them, and then obviously there are going to be some limits on how much data they can use or that kind of thing. But that's also an option that maybe you have a, a more tech-savvy friend or something like that who can self-host or is more comfortable. That could be a good option because you probably trust them more than you would trust a like a cloud provider or trust a, a centralized service, that kind of thing. Yep, definitely. Um, you did mention backups as part of that, and that's something that uh, a listener specifically asked to learn a little bit more about. That can be one of the biggest downfalls of self-hosting, if you if you do it wrong and you have some kind of hardware outage or uh, lose a, a hard drive or hard drive fails, you could you could lose a lot of the data that that you've been thinking you're protecting. So, do you have any tips around backups or or how you handle backups? Maybe. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not one of the the best backup. Um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of thing. It's a kind of thing that you know you, you think about afterwards, and only until something catastrophic happens, then you start to realize, oh. I should have done that. Uh, but here's what I would, uh, this is what I do. I have a monthly checklist of things that I need to back up. So for example, PFSense configs, uh, Aegis Authenticator files, um, my uh, virtual machines. So every tool that I host is on a separate virtual machine. And what that allows me, it's not the most efficient way, but it's for me, it's the easiest way to back up. So I've set up my infrastructure such that Nextcloud goes into one virtual machine instance. 
in that instance, uh, I will shut down every month and I will back up all of the files on that, um, on that, that whole virtual machine hard disk, and I will put it to an external uh, hard drive. And then that external hard drive, I will take to another trusted place like my parents' house, and I will keep it there for safekeeping. Those that's that's different from, for example, redundancy. So there is backup, and then there is a redundancy. Now, redundancy is more along the lines of: Do you have, in the event of um, uh, one hard drive going out, would a second hard drive that mirrors it have uh, access to that? Now, what if, for example, uh, you had a power surge that absolutely blasts through both of those hard drives? Now you're left with nothing. So this is why there are two things that you need to consider. Not only just backups, well, not only just redundancy, but backups as well. And you want to make sure that you test your backups every month or so, um, just so that things, you know, are, are, are well-oiled. Um, I'll give you an example of what I, uh, a recent thing that happened um, to me. So I host a Pleroma instance. It's a, it's it's like a, it's like Mastodon. Um, it's a Fediverse uh, program that allows, it's basically a Twitter alternative. It's called Pleroma. And I updated something within the Ubuntu server of that. Um, and it no longer was compatible with Pleroma. And so every time, so when I rebooted it, I lost access to my Paroma instance. Luckily, I had a backup um, and I could revert that back to last month's and still have my data there. So this is an example of where a backup could help you um, figure out the problem and then sort of understand, okay, well, if I can't fix it, then I can go back and it's kind of like snapshotting things. So it's probably not the most efficient way of, you know, handling backups and doing it, you know, I'm sure there's automated ways of doing it. But for me, a monthly checklist put into my calendar to, to, to remind me to back up all my stuff. Those are the types of things that I do to, to handle my backup situation. Each person is different. They probably have their own different resources and tools, but that's kind of how I do it. I do it very manually because I, it makes me aware that I need to do this. It's a pain but I get it done anyway. And I spend, you know, a weekend just sort of, you know, a couple of hours backing all of this stuff up because I need to. Yeah, definitely. I need to dig more into the backup side of things. I know that there are some good automated solutions like sync thing can be specifically useful for, um, for file backups. I mean, that wouldn't back up like a, a service that you're running. You maybe could back up the configuration file, but it wouldn't be like you could just spin a VM back up. Um, but that's that's a good alternative for just simple file sync, especially cross-site for redundancy. Like say your friend's house, he runs sync thing, you run sync thing, and you back up each other's data to each other's house. So you each have a copy in a, in a separate location. Yeah, that's right. Um, sync thing is fantastic. Another one uh, is for your Linux instance. Time shift is quite good. I've heard good things about it. Luckily, I haven't needed to use it, but I do have it. Um, and it is restoring every day, I believe, um, onto a separate drive that I have, uh, such that if if my, you know, the, the operating system hard drive collapses, then um, I've got something to recover and restore with. So that's what TimeShift does as well. So that's another tool for backups. Okay, so I'll have to, I'll have to give that a check out. Um, what are some of the other tools that you regularly use to opt out that you'd recommend others take a look at? 
Yep, so we've discussed this. Um, the number one tool that I use is Nextcloud. I use that for my calendar. I use it for contacts. I use it for my notes. Um, and I use it as an RSS feed reader. So those are the services that I use my Nextcloud for. Um, and those keep me in sync. So my phone, my laptop, and my desktop are all in sync with this Nextcloud. Um, that gives me access to my calendar of what I need to do, my contacts, so it's not uploaded onto Google servers who are using it for nefarious purposes, most likely. Um, and then uh, my notes and those sorts of things. Uh, now, the a, a tip that I would give you with Nextcloud is one of the things that you can do in there is, and, and I've got this all in my um, self-hosted uh, little article write-up of how I do things. A little tip for you is instead of using the Nextcloud instance itself, what you can do is uh, set up a specific hard drive that is available on the network to put all of your data to. So in the event that your Nextcloud instance for some reason or another collapses, you, you don't actually have to go into the Nextcloud instance to retrieve your data. It will all be sitting in your network drive. And all your Nextcloud instance does is just reads from that hard drive. And that is the way that I like to set things up such that it's, there's a little bit of a segregation there um, so that if the next cloud instance, for whatever reason, you're upgrading it and the upgrade stuffs up, then you still have access to your data. So that's one hot tip that I would give with uh, Nextcloud. The next tool that I use um, regularly is uh, something that's not really spoken about um, that often. It's called FreeTube. A lot of people send me YouTube links um, and... Uh, I don't want to open up YouTube. So I open up this um, uh, piece of software called FreeTube, which is a more privacy respecting YouTube, call it a browser. Now, what I've also got installed is a extension called Privacy Redirect. So every time someone sends me a YouTube link, um, I click on that YouTube link and it automatically opens up the browser, the browser then opens up the, uh, the, the application, the FreeTube application, and I am now watching it in a more private, privacy-oriented way. The other way that I watch videos is through uh, RSS feeds. Now, RSS feeds are a great way in preserving your privacy um, in that you don't have to actually visit websites to get the data that you want. For example, I use... Um, uh, I, I like to keep tabs on releases. So I will, uh, GitHub also has RSS feeds that you can subscribe to such that every time that there's a new release of a particular software, it comes down on your RSS feed and it notifies you, hey, there's a new release. And so these are the types of things you can, RSS feeds are a universal way of accessing data from multiple locations. It's the most, I think it's the most efficient way of getting things done or, or getting the data that you want um, quickly without having to, you know, go into websites and look them up yourself um, manually. You can just set up your RSS feeds. You can do this for YouTube content. You can do this for um, your, your, your news um, and any sort of, uh, I guess, uh, updates and blogs and, and posts, anything like that. Most sites will have this RSS feature. And so you should be using those. I think that that is a really, really nice way of getting um, information. Now, in terms of RSS feeds, what you can do is set that up to open up in a YouTube download. Um, and so rather than going to the 
direct YouTube website, you download it um, from uh, another instance of, well, like it's like a privacy-oriented YouTube called, uh, I think it's called Invidious. And what you can do there is download the, the, the software or, or download the video and you can play it on your desktop without actually having to interact with YouTube and giving away that you've, oh, you've, you've, you've watched this video or track you. The other tool that I use um, every day is my PFSense router. PFSense is a open source software that um, it, it's for your router. It basically uh, gives you key features like um, uh, having a VPN on throughout the entire home for every device. Um, it can also host a VPS, uh, VPN server so you can access your home uh, as though from anywhere in the world as though you are just on the network. Um, and those are the types of, uh, you know, things that you might wish to consider um, uh, to protect your privacy um, rather than relying on a, on a, on a, a, a third party. So, there's PFSense that does that handles all of my network traffic. Um, you can also start to do more complicated things like create two uh, networks, one like a guest network or one for a all your devices that you don't trust and so that they don't speak to the devices that you trust. So you can start playing around with PFSense and configuring your network to how you want. Um, it is a little bit more advanced. Again, it's a it's a rabbit hole to go down, but those are some of the key tools that I use in my arsenal um, or, or to protect my privacy. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Nextcloud is something that I definitely would recommend that people take a look at. Uh, I think it's probably, at least in my in my mind, probably the most important app to self host if you're going to self host anything. Namely, because like you said, it does so many things. I mean, you can use it as a kind of like a Google Drive esque replacement. Uh, it does calendar sync, it does notes, it does uh, RSS, like you mentioned with Newsboat. There's a, a lot of stuff that's just built in and you only have to spin up one app and you get all of these different services. And a lot of them are, are really key services that you normally rely on a centralized provider for. Um, so I definitely, I've been running that for a while and I, I love that service. That's definitely one that I'd, I'd recommend, recommend people jump into. Um, I'm curious, have you used Newpipe, the Android app? Yes, uh, that is on my uh, phone. Um, yep. It's very, very good. It is basically, so Newpipe would probably be the, I guess, the mobile version of your YouTube um, and uh, FreeTube would be the desktop application. So yeah, okay. I have used it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I need to look into FreeTube. I've used NVIDIAs a good bit um, with Privacy Redirect, but I've I've really only been consuming YouTube videos on mobile. Um, so I've been using Newpipe for quite a while. I can't remember who yeah. recommended that to me, but that's Newpipe a, a is fantastic. Tool. It yeah. is fantastic. It really it's surprising is how well it works. <laughs> yep, it's really good. Um, okay, well, do you have anything else you wanted to chat about? Any any questions for me? Um, so I think I wanted to talk a little bit about where Bitcoin falls into my toolkit um, when it comes yeah, to opting out. I think uh, for me, when I opt out or when I think of opting out of certain things, um, Currency debasement is my number one thing that I want to protect myself from. Um, I want strong property rights in the form of a finite supply of money. So that is where I use Bitcoin as a tool to opt out and defend myself against the printing presses of the central banks. I also want stability in the rules. I want things to, you know, uh, 
I, I want to see uh, these rules be abided by for a very, very long time. And I think Bitcoin is that tool for me. So for me, I think that's just the, something that I, I prescribe to and I want to use for my for the long term and hold my savings in that in that as a tool. I think it's a very, very important tool for freedom um, and to allow people to express themselves in a in a way uh, that the legacy financial system um, simply does not. Uh, so I think that that is, yeah, that's how Bitcoin falls into my toolkit of, I guess, other tools and things that I use to, to defend myself. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think cryptocurrency is a, a solution that isn't, I think, super popular in the privacy community. Um, I think there are there are some within the privacy community that, that have realized how valuable that can be. Um, but I think that more people need to realize not only is it a a tool for privacy, but it's also, like you said, it's a great way to opt out of inflation or um, central control of money, government control of money. There's there's a lot of stuff to dive into there. Um, and as you know, obviously, most of my time in the cryptocurrency space is spent on Monero, um, but I'm, I'm definitely thankful for Bitcoiners like you who are, are privacy focused. And you, you see the need for uh, using tools around Bitcoin that help you preserve your privacy as well. So. I think that's a really important aspect of it. Um, and then like you mentioned, Ministry of Nodes is focused on Bitcoin and, and self-hosting as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So if you want to learn how to use these tools in a in a in a manner that helps you and protects you um, from these uh, issues that are occurring um, pretty much every day, you wake up, your currency is being debased. Um, so if you want to opt out from that, uh, yeah, you're going to need to learn how to use the tools to be able to to, to successfully do that. Um, and sometimes it is just like, you know, flexing a muscle um, and you'll need to repeatedly work on it to get better at it. Um, it's a mindset thing. So, yeah, Ministry of Nodes uh, helps you with that. And the last question I have for you um, is what advice would you give to someone starting to realize the need for personal privacy? Okay, so... I think understand that there is no panacea. You won't wake up one day, swallow a pill, and suddenly, oh, you're private. That's just not how it works. We spoke about this earlier. Uh, it is an ongoing journey. It's mostly about trade-offs, and you will come to find that it will be about picking the lesser of the evils. Um, there will not be a perfect solution. We don't live in a perfect world, so don't expect perfection on your first go. That's more just something to be cognizant of. But in terms of practical steps that you could take, I think you can start small and work your way up. So getting comfortable with a password manager is a good place to start. Getting comfortable with two-factor authentication that's something that you can look into considering. Then from there, move on to things like Nextcloud and, you know, um, FreeTube and uh, hosting your own tools. I think if you start small and make these incremental changes and you keep at them, that's when you're going to get that snowball effect of, okay, at the end of it, you will have grown into a more privacy-oriented individual. But the thing is to just start. I think that's my main advice. Start doing something. Um, don't just sit there and take it from corporations lying down. It's not the way to be. Constantly evaluate um, and see what could be fixed on your end. So that's my advice. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, those are some great keys. I think just realizing you need privacy and you need to take it seriously, you need to take it into your own hands is, I mean, that's a that's a huge, huge step. So once people have accomplished that, and I'm, I'm assuming people who are listening here have accomplished that, um, it's really important to then just kind of take things one step at a time. And like you mentioned, starting with a password manager, starting with switching to maybe a more privacy-preserving browser are some really good ways that aren't massively impactful in the way that you do daily life but they're really good building blocks that will set set you up for success as you you build on more and more privacy-preserving things, get into more tools, all of that down the road. Yeah, just a point around why privacy is important. I would strongly recommend reading a cypherpunk manifesto by Eric Hughes. Um, it is It was published in 1993, and oh, it, it, it is just insane the level of foresight that that individual had um, to what you see today. It is phenomenal. So a cypherpunk manifesto, it's a very short read, uh, but it's worth every, um, worth all of your attention. We'll definitely add that into the show notes. That is a, a gold, gold asset. Everyone needs to read that. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Katan. It was a great chance to, to finally get to, to chat with you. I'm, I'm glad uh, we were able to sit down and, and hopefully we'll we'll be able to interact with more with you in the future. Um, where can listeners go to to find or communicate with you? Yep. So all of my socials are on k3tan.com in the top menu there. Um, you can find me on Twitter at underscore k3tan. Perfect. Well, I will definitely make sure to get all of these links into the show notes. We went over a lot of different tools um, and I'm excited, excited for people to to dive in and check these things out. Well, thanks again for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. Well, we've already talked about it a good bit today with Catan. I wanted to circle back to Calyx OS as this week's project to help you opt out. Calyx OS is a privacy-preserving Android mobile OS that allows you to reclaim your privacy while on the go. It comes without Google Apps or tracking, but does allow you to run MicroG, an open source connector for Google Play services, something which many apps require to function properly. I've been using Calyx OS for the past three months while loving the experience, and have written down more detailed thoughts along with app recommendations, a simple installation note, and more on my blog at sethsimmons.me. The link to that blog post can be found in the show notes, along with many other helpful links to learn more about how you can use Calyx OS to opt out this week. Thanks.